welcome to Meet Me in the Middle. We are in the midst of our summer wellness diet trends over the decades series. And today we're going to talk about the 1950s. My name is Jenny Omani. And I'm Annika Buckle. Just a gentle and loving reminder, if you have not yet given us a review on your favorite podcasting platform or shared us with your friends and enemies alike, uh, this is a good time. This is your call to go do that right now. We really appreciate it. I mean, we don't want your mean enemies, but if you think somebody could benefit from what we talk about, please send this their way. Frenemies, welcome. Enemies, not so much. <laughs> so we are talking about diet trends and wellness trends. So there's going to be body image, I would say, as a trigger warning today, but nothing really nasty or nefarious, but uh, they are nonetheless. So if you do not want to hear anything regarding body image, go find yourself happy videos on Instagram or YouTube or your platform of choice. Annika Buckle, we are going to talk about the 1950s now. We're the com- war is over. We're going to keep, let me guess, let me guess. Hold on. Not to spoil okay, your whole yeah. episode, but are we going to yeah. continue to police women's bodies? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> of course we are. Um, <laughs> no. We're just going to shift our perspective a little bit here. <laughs> but you know what we are going to touch on today? Mm-hmm. The origin story of the, the phrase wellness. Oh, exciting yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so it actually um, was a term that came to fruition in the 1950s. So that's kind of cool. Let's do a little chronological breakdown of where we are in the 1950s in terms of um, diet trends. So the first part of the 1950s, it is important to remember that rationing is still in place. The war Mm. didn't end and then everything just went back to normal like the next day. So um, rationing ended sort of in the early 50s, I think 1954 in the UK. So it would have been like 1952 or 53 in the US. Um, So availability of a lot of foods was still not uh, pre-war yet. Right. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? You still had all of those resources pouring overseas. You still had, you know, a lot of that land not being used to farm things like you know we still that stuff to your point you know we might flip a switch and stop fighting but we don't we can't flip a switch on resources (laughs) totally because anything that sort of slowed down it's just going to take a while to get the engine going Mm -hmm. and to get all of the the things in place for large-scale farming and shipping and i mean like how many you're gonna have to i guarantee you Cargo ships were repurposed during the war. (laughs) (laughs) Right. A lot of of things just weren't available. (laughs) Totally. A lot of things were repurposed. So they had to, it takes time to get things back. Um, However, once sugar was no longer rationed, the sugar diet. (laughs) Nothing screams marketing like marketing the shit out of something that's been in a scarcity situation for I mean we talk about the pendulum swinging a lot but this feels like a real beat you over the head with it hey now I can't I don't know if Roger's sugar that's just like the brand I always think of was I I think it's an old company but it doesn't actually matter I just picture like these marketing executives when they're back at full production being like fuck yeah let's advertise the shit out of sugar we're back we're back baby in the sugar diet 
women were encouraged to replace fresh produce with <laughs> regular cane sugar for quick oh energy. Oh my God. I have, oh, I have so many things. to. I have a lot of feelings about that. <laughs> women. Notice it was women. Men were oh, not oh, men should keep eating fruit. That's fine. <laughs> I just, but also like which women? The women who can afford to buy sugar, right. of course, right? right? Because it's this whole thing where it's like, right. what you just switch. Okay, everybody's eating fruit, but now there's this new thing. Quick, run and get the new thing. Right. Not that right. sugar's new, but it was newly avail- available again. Right. Um, I could not find an image of the ad because it just everywhere. It was, I looked a few different places. It was, it would no longer show up. So I don't know if. I don't know how someone scrubs the internet of something, but I do know it is <laughs> possible. But um, there is an ad in the from the 1950s, 1954, that um, where the ad copy says that a 75 calorie grapefruit is more fattening than a 54 ca- than 54 calories worth of sugar. Oh Jesus, H. Murphy. So. The grapefruit diet. Yeah, died. I was going to say, clearly <laughs> that was in vogue in the 30s and we have moved on. Yeah, we are over grapefruits. <laughs> Fuck grapefruits. But it's just classic. It's like you see mm-hmm. fresh herbs, um, you know, like hundreds of years ago, once they started using more dried herbs and they were importing dried herbs, it was like this delicacy. So now only the peasants were using the fresh herbs, only the dry herbs because they'd traveled farther were expensive. And then when those became more readily available, they're like, fuck dry herbs, fresh herbs for everyone. (laughs) Like, it's like, you cannot win. Right. Right. The second, the second you figured it out, it's the pendulum swings back in the opposite direction. From our lifetime, we went right. low fat. We've been high fat. We've been <laughs> low carb. We've, you know what I mean? Like it's the same shit has just yeah. happened in perpetuity. I'm going to go out on a women's say it was probably a short-lived trend. <laughs> I mean, as like most just like unbelievable diet trends are, thankfully, usually they don't last too long. Although I mean, sometimes they get repackaged like Atkins became keto, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Although if the sugar diet was like, eat baked goods with sugar i could see that like i could be on board with that long <laughs> i accidentally did that myself for a while <laughs> yeah uh then we move into the creation of our friend the cabbage soup diet oh i was wondering when we were gonna get this one in this little series we're doing i knew it was only a matter of time i'm surprised the cabbage soup diet i mean realistically people have been eating cabbage soup for (laughs) i don't have a firm date on this but i'm gonna go with since they found cabbage and realized you could boil water and once again i'm also just gonna guess that cabbage soup was not the food of rich people cabbages have never been particularly expensive right right like so of course it would then become a diet trend (laughs) the cabbage soup um in case you don't know, uh, is an its initial form. The diet involves you eating co- homemade cabbage soup um, only. That's it. Oh my god! Do you know how but sick you, can, you would be of cabbage soup, Annika? You can eat as much as you want, though. Uh-huh. Oh, it's like when I did the wild rose. <laughs> it's unlimited quantities. Unlimited of cabbage soup. Cabbage soup. I did try to see if I could find like the original recipe because I believe 
like in any photos, even old photos, there was clearly like some carrots. Something like it was, else. It was like, yeah, right. right? Onion, probably. It's, I would hope I, anyway for flavor. <laughs> I would assume carrot, celery, onions, and then probably chicken broth and cabbage would be my guess. I could not find the original recipe. Why? Because SEO meant search engine optimization, <laughs> meant that all of the current cabbage soup diet blog recipes were up at the right. top. <laughs> and even because, if I type- Because this is a diet trend that unlike the sugar diet did not go away. Oprah did this diet. I was going to say that's, I feel I have some like nineties memory of Oprah and her like yeah. eternal Oprah and her wagon of fat uh, oh <laughs> days. Yes. I mean, I'm not one to slag Oprah because I genuinely really, I like Oprah. She's had a real run, like her entire career. She's a brilliant, brilliant businesswoman. And I think it's hard to not acknowledge that. She's a brilliant businesswoman. And I really appreciate a lot of the things she's done. Unfortunately, she's also platformed a lot of real doozies. But yes, so Oprah did do the cabbage soup diet. The more modern version of the cabbage soup diet is that you have one meal a day is cabbage soup. And honestly, purely like let's pretend diets aren't a bad thing. I don't even know how much weight you'd lose just having one lower calorie meal a day because you'd just be like, well, I'm hungry again. And you eat something else. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like eat either a salad. I okay. eat a salad or a vegetable soup most days for lunch. So I don't know. Am I already doing it by accident? Yeah. I mean, I don't, the logic of it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Cause you're just going to not like when it's intake. the only thing that you're eating. That's a yes. very different context. That is a very different context. Also, I'm going to go out there and say that if you're boiling everything that's you're going to eat, like the nutrient <laughs> density is going to be pretty low. Right. Um, but yeah, I just, it's like intermittent fasting. Like, okay. So you only eat during a certain window, the goal being that you consume less calories so that you lose weight. But it's like, what if you just go to town during your eating window? Cause that's <laughs> what I would do. <laughs> I do not make the best choices when I am hungry in all any areas of my life. No. And I mean, this is like, again and again, what is like current science and research showing us it's the restriction that is actually the problem when it comes to the cycle of like, you know, binging and restricting the binging comes directly as a result of the restricting. So yes, because none of us, like I am not in all facets of my life. I am absolutely not my best when I am hungry and I will make like, when I am starving, I will not be grabbing a vegetable. I will not be grabbing a salad. It will be be, a carb. It will be a carb. It will probably have cheese. And I will eat so much that I will feel uncomfortable afterwards (laughs) because I am so hungry. Yeah. And then I'll be like, oh, why did I eat so much? Because my poor little gremlin hormones were like, bitch, (laughs) I'm starving. Anyways, so that diet's dumb. (laughs) They really all are, but like cabbage soup. I just, I just think about how sick, I mean, it would, it's like the master cleanse, right? Like how sick are you going to get of that thing? And how long are you going to be able to do it? Like any of these things, like, like. Again, you know, putting aside, you know, if, if we remove, you know, how problematic 
yeah. losing weight as a goal is, even if we just pull that out, like you can't, this is the reason that things like this quote unquote work. This is the reason that, you know, Jenny Craig quote unquote worked. This is the reason that well, they all you know, work diet Short quote term. Unquote worked, but guess what happens when you stop eating cabbage soup every meal, right? The same thing that happens when you stop eating Jenny Craig every meal. The mystery is not how do you lose weight short term? Right. Right. Because yeah. any of these things, you will absolutely lose weight short term, mm -hmm. but that's to your point. It's not the point. Right. <laughs> so that's kind of it from a diet perspective in the fifties. But what I think is really interesting from the 1950s is the whole aesthetic of women. Mm. We had a huge shift and I don't really think we've seen um, I think in the first half of the 20th century, we saw more shifts in the image of what a woman looks like than we have since, mm. right? We went from like corsets um, to, okay, now two of these, these two wars really pushed women into the workforce. And then the 1950s is where fashion picks up post-war this is where these big designers are like cranking out stuff, right? Christian Dior, Givenchy, like they're finally these like brilliant fashion minds are like, thank God the war is over. We need to make clothing. <laughs> somebody, somebody get me my tool and some ribbon because we are no longer. Doing We're back, baby. <laughs> Rod, the Rogers workers and the high end <laughs> designers were having a field day. But what's interesting is you end up seeing more availability of ready-made clothes. So ready-made clothes sort of took off in the, I want to say like late 1800s, early 1900s in terms of people not just having to go to a seamstress, being able to buy things um, at like a, a department store. It's so and interesting when you think about how little of our history ready-to-wear clothes have existed when it's, it's for me, fascinating. It's, I mean, for, I mean, women of our generation, it's been our entire lives. Yeah. And the reality is it really has not been very, a very long timeline in, in of history. The history of clothing mm -hmm. is utterly fascinating. Like mm -hmm. it's really, really, really fascinating if you look into it. And this is in that sort of historical timeline, this is when you get very accessible clothes, but this is where you get more standardized sizing. Because of course, if you are making mm -hmm. clothes that are ready to make, like you have to be able to know which what's going to fit you. And so sizing really comes into play here. Um, sizing I wonder, I wonder how long between when sizing was introduced and mm -hmm. like what we see again, like what I've seen my entire life being like in this one store, I am both a 10 and a 12 and a mm -hmm. 14. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually these jeans are at 16, even though I also have a 10 from this same company. And like who sat there and was like, this is a zero. <laughs> Well, and actually, I think it's a, it's a good perspective, especially for us as women. I shouldn't say for us, especially for people who feel like like clothes just don't, you know, fit them right. Yeah. Right. I think there's a lot of this sense of like, oh, I don't fit into this the way that I'm supposed to. And the reality is for most of history, clothes fit us because they were designed for our bodies to fit our yeah. bodies. <laughs> so if your body doesn't fit the clothes that's not of actually the fault of your body, right? No. And what's so, I always like would love to be a fly in the wall for these 
instances where a bunch of people literally decided sizes. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like someone somewhere at some point decided, determined what a zero to small, medium, like whatever. And then enough people agreed with them that that's that become became, the standard. Right. But then that standard's different within each brand to your point. <laughs> Never mind so, from one brand to the next. Like, good luck. Right. Oh, I know. Now, in the 50s, there's definitely like left less brands. I would imagine it was probably a little bit more streamlined sizing wise, but I don't know, man. For it sure. And I'm sure, different. And I'm sure there's still a lot of people who have their own either, you know, homemade or tailor made sure. things. Yes. You know, so there's still going to be just a little. It's just going to look, it's just going to look different. I just totally. find that so interesting. It's super fascinating. Um, and the emphasis becomes on silhouette. So if you mm -hmm. think back, you think of like those exaggerated shoulders and then um, bigger, fuller skirts. So that petticoats that mm -hmm. were being worn because the emphasis was making the waist look small um, by making the shoulders and the sort of the fullness of the skirt bigger. Aha. Uh -huh. What you also see is because there's this big consumerism push, right? Industry, um, economy, getting back, you know, turning, getting those wheels turning again post-war, there becomes with these ready-made clothes, uh, the, the in, invention of the cocktail dress. So you- Oh, that's a fun little staple we still get today. I like that. Yeah. So the idea being like, if you think back pre-First World War, upper-class women- their day revolved around what they were going to wear. Like there's literally a, the right thing to wear if you went for a walk, which was a different thing to wear if you were sitting at home reading a book than what you were going to wear for meals. It right. was all, if you were going to go visit a friend, the type of hat you wore, like everything right. was very um, etiquette-based and mm -hmm. very, there was rules and you followed right. the rules, but you could only have, you could only follow the rules if you had someone helping you get dressed if right. You, well, and you had the money to have, you know, yeah. six things to wear a day. Right. Or totally. if you were even of a class where that mattered. I mean, as yeah. per usual, you know, women of working class who there have been throughout history out of necessity and need and poverty, um, you know, it's going to be less relevant if you're working for 16 hours on a factory floor mm -hmm. <laughs> that you're not wearing the right hat to tea with your friend. Right. Well, yeah, because you don't have time to have tea with your friend. Anyways. Exactly. <laughs> So you see this dressing practice that existed in upper class societal forums. And now that there's ready to wear clothes, clothing's more affordable. You see the middle class kind of adopt these different outfits, not to the same extreme, right? but, but so that there's outfit changes during the day. So there is, you know, the air quotes, right thing to wear for different social circumstances and the need to put on a different dress to go yeah. to a cocktail party than what you would have worn to work or to, you know, bake bread in your house or. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, think about it. Even now, if you go to a wedding, it'll tell you what most invitations will say, like cocktail attire, formal attire, like whatever black tie, whatever the, you know, the dress code is. I just find it interesting that like cocktail dresses were an outskirt of this pivot in mm. consumerism. <laughs> so we've got more clothes. Uh, they're more accessible to people beyond just the upper echelons of society. And then if you notice, like when you think of like your 1950s woman, you th they always have a red lip. 
<laughs> and makeup, right? So makeup really comes into play. Um, red lips, eyeliner, eyeshadow, only one color. Every single thing I read was like, only one color, only one color. I'm like, okay, I get it. They wore one shade of eyeshadow. <laughs> so I'm not, we didn't have the same palettes that so we are what, encouraged to have today. A hundred percent. Right. <laughs> Which isn't surprising. Um, and like the shades of red really weren't that different either. I right. think because with time comes pigmentation and different, you know, standards in terms of colors and and whatnot and then uh the super penciled eyebrows forgot no. about this yeah 50s 90s they i was gonna say <laughs> i remember those but it's a real like full face makeup and it's this shift uh to an emphasis of like an idyllic woman clothes hair makeup like done especially coming on the heels of a war where women were not necessarily, they were doing their hair and makeup because there was a lot of emphasis on, um, beauty is duty. Beauty uh, is duty. Yes. Yeah. And presentation. And, you know, just because you're doing this work doesn't mean you you're, you're like, you're still a lady. We don't want you to become a man. You just need to do his job until he comes home yeah, for a lower wage. <laughs> And so then in the fifties, it's like, okay, now you're going to dress the part, look the part. And you get this 1950s housewife yeah. aesthetic, right? Yeah. Which is, I think, I mean, that's what I think of when I think of women in the 1950s. I think of yeah. like, I think of a woman with an apron opening her oven for dinner on the table because her husband's with coming heels. home from her. Heels, <laughs> yeah. right? I can't right? imagine wearing heels in my kitchen. I don't even want to wear them out of my house. <laughs> I don't even wear pants in my house. Like, honestly, like if I'm wearing jeans, I recently saw someone called jeans leg prisons. And yes, leg cages. No, thank you. Uh, they're <laughs> off. Like sweatpants are the only acceptable pant for leisure in my house. Like, Isn't I just it funny. We've kind of like the pendulum has swung back to oh. like multiple outfit changes, but only because I must wear something with minimal or no waistband in my house. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I deserve to be comfortable in my house. Yes. The end. <laughs> it is my house and I will wear a muumuu if I want to. I mean, a flowy maxi dress. <laughs> to Moo tomato, maxi. tomato. <laughs> um, and then this is the coolest part of the 1950s. Well, okay. There's probably things that are cooler, but in terms of our lens for today, the word wellness is created in 1950 by Halbert Dunn, who's an American um, MD physician, and he combined the words well-being and fitness. <laughs> that is where the word wellness comes from. He I made a word. I just think of my four-year-old, like just like making up words. <laughs> and I'm like, when you read, then when you read stuff like this, you're like, I mean, why not? Wellness was used as a term since the 1650s, but only to mean the opposite of illness. Right, right. So the actual wellness industry didn't start till later. And the concept of wellness started in 1950. The industry itself doesn't take off till like the 70s. Um, mm -hmm. But it actually started in 1950. Any guesses where this physician's research started from? I, I, I just always assume it's like one of the Nordic countries when anything... <laughs> positive for health comes along like he's from sweden or norway or i don't know 
Uh, no, although the spelling of his name being Halbert, H-A-L-B-E-R-T, he's definitely, I mean, nobody's really from America unless they're indigenous, but like he, he's not far away. Like he's not that many degrees of separation from Europe for sure. Right. Right. Um, well, so he is actually the chief of the national office of vital statistics and it comes from in 1948, the WHO post-world, um, adopts a constitution. And it says health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmary. So the WHO post-war is basically saying like, hey, being healthy isn't just about not not being being sick. sick. Uh Like there's components of health. And before, and I think it's really important to look back even today with how rampant misinformation is within the wellness world that like at the core of it holistic recognition of humans um, and what it takes for humans to be holistically healthy without the connotation of healthy holistic wellness is a really good one it's acknowledging Mm -hmm. that people are multifaceted Mm -hmm. um, that people are dynamic and that there's not this linear process for what makes anyone like well or healthy or you know and I think it's actually really cool that after the war the WHO sort of took a step back in a way to look at what it's almost like after the war everyone was like okay like what we'd hope would happen after post-COVID right like okay what are we going to learn from this (laughs) right right What I find especially interesting that I think has gotten lost in the kind of modern wellness industrial complex is that I love to talk about (laughs) anyway, um, is that it's also like there are layers beyond just like your physical, you know, your diet and your, the way that you move your body, you know, there's social Mm -hmm. and, and, and economic layers on top of that, that I think Mm -hmm. it's very hard to make money off of but are critically important when we look at like true wellness and people's well-being you know yes well and i mean someone who's truly well isn't a keyboard warrior telling everybody (laughs) what they're supposed to eat and that sunscreen's gonna kill them and you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. if you're truly well um then you're don't feel the need to tell everybody else how they should also be well Mm -hmm. right and I think Mm -hmm. that that's kind of um definitely lost in translation and they're not actually talking about that necessarily here as they're coining the term what they're talking about here is just because you're not sick with some sort of disease doesn't mean that you're necessarily healthy right right and I think that that's an important step forward in terms of what recognizing yeah 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 it also opens the door to recognize socioeconomic factors, mm-hmm. to recognize, um, you know, privilege, to recognize all of these different components that really have a huge, huge play in it. And it's got to start somewhere. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's a very interesting when you look at origin stories. And I think when you factor context, which is post-war um, 
and you're looking at what does health mean after this huge, like catastrophic for a lot of places mm -hmm. event in terms of lives lost, um, many, many countries completely building from the ground up because they were flattened. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. to sort of it look at it's almost like a reset, right? Okay, what does health actually actually mean in the context of all of this destruction that's just happened? Okay, let's wrap this up with a pop quiz. Annika Buckle. Uh-oh. In the late 1950s, one giant company that still exists today started the first employee wellness program. It was a fitness-based program. I do not have the full details of it, but which company is it? Oh, I was hoping this would be multiple choice. No, <laughs> but I mean, like, uh, okay, fine. Who's, who's a giant company now? Okay. Everything's owned by like what? Pepsi, Coke, and Nestle. Pick one. <laughs> Nestle. No, Pepsi. Really? Yeah. Bless them. They tried. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't work. So then they just went on to purchase everything else in the world. <laughs> the end. <laughs> so yeah. So that's the 1950s. So nothing too uh, exciting in the diet world other than eating sugar only. Or kept soup. Uh, I love it. I definitely um, am going to uh, not eat cabbage soup for all three of my meals today. And I'm also going to choose a grapefruit over a tablespoon of sugar. So I guess I, uh, I guess I haven't learned anything. Apparently that's a high fat meal. Thanks so much for listening to Meet in the Middle. We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.